Great to see you. My name's Matthew. It's uh, good to be together. It's great. I, just, I was down at our site on the quay, and we, as I was leaving, we were singing the nice of the wondrous cross down there. And I, as I came up here, we were, as I came in, we were singing when, when nice of It was almost like it was planned. So can we can we sing that at the end as well after I've spoken? Is that going to mess your system? Because it's, it's a it's a hymn that's based on the on the passage of scripture that we're looking at. So it's it's a good one to res- respond in. Well, it's uh, it's Mother's Day, of course, or Mothering Sunday, if you prefer. And as John has already referenced, uh, this can be a day which uh, generates different emotions. That if you're um, in happy family life, and maybe you're a mum and you've got your kids around today and all that kind of stuff, or like Dan and, and Hannah celebrating Bethia, uh, this is a good day. For other people, it's more difficult. If you uh, have maybe lost your mum uh, recently, especially, this can be a, a difficult day. Or for other people, uh, if you... Maybe things that haven't worked out in your life as you'd wanted, wanted them to. If maybe you wanted to be a mum and you're not, those kind of things, this can be a, this can be a, a difficult day. So it's a, it's a funny old day, isn't it? It's a day where we both celebrate and also a day when people can feel some, some difficulties emotionally to navigate. Actually, lots of celebrations like that. Christmas is similar, isn't it? A lot of people celebrate Christmas. But for other people, it stirs up difficulties and painful emotions. So... Uh, if, you're, if today's a difficult day for you, I want, you to, want you to express to you again, just uh, God loves you, God's with you, and uh, we're really glad that you're here and pray for God's grace and peace upon you. And if this is a day which is just great for you, well, God bless you in that as well. I hope you have a brilliant family day, whatever it is you're doing. And so much of how we respond to different things in life depends upon our context. If, you, if you've had a, a baby recently and started a family, how you feel about Mother's Day is going to be different from if your mum has just died. Um, and that's true of so much of life for us. Uh, but there's lots of good things, actually. All of us can celebrate today. It is brilliant to celebrate when babies are born uh, in the church. It's great to celebrate church, family life. We believe in, in church as, as, as an expression of God's family. And so if you're part of this, let's celebrate it together. And all the other stuff as well. I mean, it's brilliant. The sun is shining. What a fantastic morning. It's a little bit chilly, but... Uh, it's great, isn't it, to see the sun coming up, the flowers coming up. First tulip opened in my garden yesterday. Always a moment to celebrate. It's the first tulip. <laughs> Daffodils are almost over, but the tulip's just beginning. Uh, it's great. Um, and there are all kinds of things that we might want to put in, in the credit column of the ledger of life. And uh, there might be family things we want to celebrate. There might be stuff that we enjoy about spring, and we put them in the credit column. It's all the stuff that's good, the things that we value. There's also stuff that we'd put in the loss column of the ledger of life, all the crud. February blues, not very keen on February, much prefer March. Or broken hearts, or disappointments, or suffering or loss, all that stuff which we want to put in the loss column, and hopefully a bunch of stuff which we want to put in the credit column as well. But here's a, a question for us, and really the question I'm wanting to explore this morning, which is how do we know if we're calculating things right? How do we know if what we're putting into the the credit column actually should be there rather than the other way around. Uh, that one of the claims that the Bible makes is that the human heart is deceitful above all things. What that means is that we tend to get confused and we tend to be self-deceiving. And uh, that means that we tend to think that uh, uh, we're mining for diamonds when actually we're just digging up coal or we confuse sand for gold. Uh, and we see that in all kinds of, of areas. It's, it's that thing which you really want, you've looked for, saved for, got hold of, and then find a couple of years later it's making its way to the charity shop or onto eBay. Or it's that ambition you had and 
chased and dreamed of, and then you achieve it, and you find actually you don't feel really much different having got it than you did before you had it. Also, it's that kind of sense that uh, I think so many people have of, of wanting to feel in some way special and imagine that there is something which is a bit special about us rather than us just being ordinary, run-of-the-mill people. And you sometimes see this reflected in the, in the current interest in people's family trees, which seems to become ever more popular, digging into our history, perhaps as culture becomes more fluid and uncertain, people want to dig further into their history. And, and of course, when people dig into their history, everyone's hoping and probably expecting that somewhere you're related to someone really powerful and famous and important, that if you can go back, actually, I should be directly related to some king or queen, and really, that's, that's why I'm special. Everybody looks for that, and of course, for most people, that's just not the case. Most of us are just descended from a long line of turnip pickers. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got no real idea about my family history. I'm sure if I went back 200 years and could find my ancestors and say, oh, what do you do? Oh, we pick turnips. We pick turnips. We eat turnips. We pick turnips. We eat turnips. And I'm sure if I could go back 200 years beyond that and find their ancestors and say, well, what do you do? Are you, are you related to the king? The king? No, we eat turnips. We pick turnips. We eat turnips. <laughs> We plant turnips, we grow turnips, we pick turnips, we dig turnips, we eat turnips. I think if you went back a thousand years and could find my ancestors, you'd get the same answer. What are you doing? Well, we're digging up turnips, we're planting turnips, and we're eating turnips. Uh, great. Most of us are just peasants. <laughs> Turnip picking, digging, sowing, eating. And I hate turnips. You know, that's, that's where most of us... <laughs> and, and, and even now, much of life is kind of turnip picking... And the trouble is that if we think we're stacking up gold in the credit column of life and actually it's just turnips, well, there's a bit of a problem going on. Now, of course, some people do. Some people aren't descended from a long line of distinguished turnip pickers. Some people actually are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Some people uh, have all the apparent advantages. And for those of us who are parents, of course, we want, if we can, to put a silver spoon in our kids' mouths. We want the best for our kids. And also, we want to think that our kids are special. And certainly, when you're a new parent, it's typical to kind of imagine there's something special about your kids. When they, could you, It's extraordinary. Have you seen how early my child is crawling, walking, talking, writing? writing concertos, whatever it might be, painting. Look at that painting. Surely the next Picasso. That just looks rubbish. It's a mess. Uh, <laughs> we, we all like to think that our kids are special, and then, um, and then we realize, actually, well, our kids are just like us, descended from a long line of turnip pickers. <laughs> um, now, now why, why is it? Why do, why do we have this, this desire to stack things up in the credit column of life? And why do we kind of feel this desire to be in some way special? Now, it might just be that it's some kind of evolutionary mechanism to give our turnip-picking genes a chance of surviving to the next generation. Or it might be something more profound. Um, and, of course, I think it's something more profound. Another way of, of looking at this might be to think about how uh, it's typical in us humans to want to be right, and uh, that word right has different meanings and connotations. We, we want to be proved right, to be found right, to use a more 
theological term. We want to be righteous. We want to be good, morally right, on the right side of history. We want to be right, found right, proved right, recognized as right, acknowledged as right. And, and why is that? Actually, why, if all we are is just one generation of turnip pickers turning into another generation of turnip pickers, why does it matter if what we're stacking up in the ledger of life is coal or diamonds? What difference in the end does it make? Now, the, the story that the Bible tells is that the human desire for credit is rooted in who we were made by and what we were made for. And that fundamentally, the human issue is we want to be right with God. And that's why we feel this desire for rightness and this desire to get stuff stacked in the credit column of life and why we want to be in some way special. It's because we want to be right with God. That's, that is the fundamental psychological issue going on. That's what's going on in our hearts, that we want to be right with God. Now, of course, that's a very different view of the world from how the modern world tends to think. So much of the way the modern world, the way the modern world thinks is based on Freudian psychology rather than biblical psychology. It's based on Freudian psychology. And Freud said that the desire to be right with God is just an infantile wish. It's wish projection. There isn't a God, and a desire for a Father in heaven is just infantile wish projection, trying to make us, giving you a mechanism to cope with the reality of your miserable turnip-picking life. That's why you say, I want to be right with God. That's what Freud said. And that's really how much of our society thinks. It's kind of the dominant thought pattern in, our, in the modern Western world. Grow up, be independent, don't worry about getting right with God, just do your thing. But the trouble with that, of course, is that it hasn't exactly worked. I mean, you look at the world and how the world and Western culture has developed, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that Western culture at the beginning well into now the 21st century, I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that actually we are more adult, more mature, more sensible, more reliable, more responsible than were our ancestors 100 years ago. Freudian psychology hasn't really worked for us. Now, this morning I want us to look at the account of a man who did assume that the biblical explanation for the desires of our heart is correct. A, who, a man who believed that the issue really is about getting right with God. And also, this, uh, this man was someone who looked pretty special. He looked like his life was loaded on the credit side, but he ended up seeing all that which looked like credit, he ended up seeing it as dung, as rubbish, as worthless junk. And uh, this is the account of the Apostle Paul, which he writes in his letter to the Philippians. We're doing a series on this letter at the moment, all on the theme of joy. We're going to be in chapter 3 of Philippians today. It's on page 692. While you're finding that, I'll pray. Jesus, thank you again that we can gather in your name this morning. Lord, thank you for, every, thank you for everyone who's in this room this morning. Jesus, thank you for my friends who I'm with here most weeks. Lord, thank you for those who are here for the first time. Lord, thank you for those who know you. Thank you for those who don't yet know you. Thank you that we're all gathered here and believe that your plan and purpose is for us to be here together today. And I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture, you'd speak to each one of us, whatever our context, whatever the particular issues of our lives at the moment, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. And Jesus, in what is a challenging, uh, uh, um, challenging account, which Paul writes here, I pray that you would help us to have hearts and minds and souls open to you, King Jesus, and we might know more of your love at work in us today. Amen. 
Right, let's look at this. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, but I'm just going to read the first verse and comment on that. Finally, my brothers and sisters, it says finally because he's coming towards the end of the letter, but it's a little bit uh, premature because he's still got a, two chapters to go. Uh, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a letter from a man called Paul who's writing to a church in a town called Philippi. And the overarching theme of this letter is about being happy in God. This is the point that Paul is making throughout this letter. It's about how you get right with God, but it's not just about how you get right with God, it's about how you get happy in God, how you get joyful. And Paul's argument really is that it's wise to pursue happiness in God. That's a, that's a sensible way to live, to pursue happiness in God, because happiness in God is more solid than anything else. Of course, the question then is, well, how do you get happy in God? And what Paul has set out for us in his letter so far is something of that story. He's said that we need to make a decision to put our trust in Jesus. How do you get happy with God? Well, you need to connect with God. How do you know who God is? You know who God is through his son, Jesus Christ. You make a decision to put your trust in Jesus. And then you need to rise above the circumstances of life. And... That can be um, a difficult message to take from people. If you're going through a tough time and somebody says, well, you just kind of need to rise above it, that often is the least helpful thing that somebody can say, especially if they seem to be having a rather easy time of life themselves. It's not helpful at all. But the thing to remember as we read this and read Paul's encouragements to us is that Paul himself, as he writes this, is a prisoner in a Roman jail. And I don't know about you, but I can, just, I can take far more... I think there's far more credibility about someone who says, rise above the circumstance of life when their own circumstances are absolutely horrible. That feels more convincing to me than somebody who's got life easy and says, rise above the circumstance of life. So I'm inclined to listen to Paul because of what he himself was living through. Rise above the circumstance of life, make a decision, put your trust in Jesus, and then out of that, understand the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ, the message of what God is doing. And Paul says to experience the benefits of the gospel, that when you put your trust in Jesus, it's not simply a mental affirmation of a particular kind of list of claims and truths, but it's something you experience. It's like putting the corkscrew in a bottle of wine, opening it up, pouring the glass and drinking it deep. You experience, you taste the benefits, the reality of it. And that's what this letter is all about. And Paul keeps saying the same thing again and again. He keeps saying, get happy in God, rejoice in God. And he's unembarrassed about telling them this again and again. He says, look, it's, for, it's good for you that I keep telling you the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You need to keep hearing it. And we need to keep hearing the good stuff again and again. If you're part of this church and you come here most weeks, uh, about six weeks out of ten, you hear me talking and the other weeks, other guys talking, and you know, pretty much every week, we all, we're saying pretty much the same thing every week. And you might think after a few years, I think I've heard that before. And you have. And that's what Paul's doing here, rejoice in the Lord. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it again, rejoice in the Lord. He's going to keep on saying it. Why? Because it's for our good. You need to keep hearing the good stuff again. So I'm not going to apologize for saying the same things again and again, and we shouldn't we don't, shouldn't grow weary of the good stuff. It's good to keep hearing the good stuff again and again. We need to keep hearing it. 
If you're not normally here week by week, I hope you hear something which is good for you today. So rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to keep on saying it. it's for your good that you keep on hearing this. And then having said that, Paul in the next verses launches into a description of things that can stop us from experiencing this happiness in God. And he uses some very vivid, some pretty florid language. And the language that he uses and the examples he gives are very tightly linked to his personal history as a very religious Jew. Now, if you are normally here, and if you were here last year, well, last year we spent a few months uh, working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, another church. Actually, when he writes Philippi, he's in prison in Rome, but uh, we also, he also wrote a, ch- a letter to the church in Rome, and we spent some time looking at that last year. And, uh, and if you were here for that, as we read these next verses in Philippians, you might think, oh, that sounds familiar. And it's because what Paul is saying here is actually very similar to what he says on a, in more detail in, in the letter to the Romans. If, if, you're, if you're new to church, uh, then... What Paul says here won't sound familiar, actually it's going to sound pretty weird. It's going to sound strange because he's, he's talking about things and using language which just isn't very common in our kind of society. So I'll read the passage and then I'll try and unpack what it means. So I'm going to read from verse 2 through to verse 11. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's first point here is, look out. Look out for people who will rob you of your spiritual joy. The point of this letter is, get happy in God. And there are other people who can keep us from happiness in God. And Paul uses some less than flattering terms to describe these people. He starts off by calling them dogs. And that is not a good thing to be called. Um, I've got two dogs. I'm a dog lover. And our view of animals is very different from how the ancient world would have seen animals. They wouldn't have had pets. Certainly in Jewish culture, wouldn't have had pets in the way that that we do, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm naturally inclined towards liking dogs in a way which Paul wouldn't naturally have been inclined. But even in our context, if you call somebody a dog, you get a pretty good idea it's not meant to be uh, encouraging. Um, so this is really strong language, and of course, in a culture where people don't have pets, 
it had been unimaginable to have two dogs in the house like I do. Uh, dogs are bad news. I mean, if you go to the developing world still, you get an more of an idea of this, that, that dogs are bad news. They, they're scavengers. They exist in semi-wild packs, roaming around. They're disease-ridden. They're dirty. They're potentially dangerous, potentially rabid. Uh, dogs are not good news. And that he's saying these people are like dogs, scavengers, joy robbers. He also calls them evildoers and mutilators, which isn't much better than being called a dog. Um, you're a dog, you're an evildoer, you're a mutilator. This is good pastoral biblical language. Paul, Paul feels really strongly about this. And uh, these people he's talking about are a group of people who are also known as the circumcision party. And the circumcision party is not a party as in we're going to circumcise people, let's have a party. It's the circumcision party as in a, like a political party, a group of people. And... Um, this isn't an issue for, for, for us in 21st century Britain, but in, in Paul's context, in the first century, when the church was first started, this was a huge issue because there were those people who were saying, look, to become a Christian, you first need to become Jewish. And that means that if you are a man, you need to be circumcised. And that's a little bit off-putting. Um, if you're trying to say to people, come to Jesus, come and find joy in God, come and join us in church. Oh, by the way, first we need to circumcise you before you come in. It's not, not the most attractive way to win people into uh, church life. Let's leave it at that. Now, we have to um, remember, of course, that Paul himself is a Jew. So this isn't, this isn't anti-Semitic. Paul himself was a Jew, and he describes it. He was circumcised himself when he was eight days old, as Jewish boys were. But what he says is that these people, these joy robbers, these dogs, they're mutilating the law of God. These are people who probably look very respectable, but they were undermining the gospel. They were saying, if you want to be a Christian, first of all, you need to do this and this and this. You need to add all these other things in. And the same thing can happen today. That dead religion wants to wrap itself around our experience of Jesus. It's so easy for this to happen in church life that we start to, the, the kind of, the, the wrappings of how we do stuff can become more central than Jesus who is the one we're meant to be focused and absorbed in. And, and, and dead religion can quickly take over and, and become, you need to do this, you need to stack these things up in the credit column of life. And we mustn't fall for that kind of dead religion because it robs us of joy. And Paul doesn't want the Philippians to be robbed of joy. He wants them to have joy in Christ and not be bound up in stuff that takes their joy. And so he uses pretty offensive language because this is so serious. This isn't just a case of, of different opinions about how you organize stuff in a church service or something. This is fundamental. It's about how you get right and how you get happy. And so he says, watch out for the dogs who'd rob you of your spiritual joy. That leads to the second point, which is, don't trust in anything other than Jesus. Don't trust in anything other than Jesus. Don't trust in what the dogs want you to believe in, this dead religion stuff. And, and don't trust in, in worldly ambitions either. And, and dead legalistic religion and worldly ambition look on the surface very different, but dig underneath and they're actually very similar. If you took a, if you took a, a Jewish Pharisee, like as, as Paul had been, and stood him next to a Roman businessman, you think these are two very different kinds of people. A strict Jewish uh, lawkeeper uh, obsessing about how to try and live right before God, 
and then a Roman businessman who's just concerned about his prestige and, st and status and how much money he can earn. Those look like two very different characters, but actually they're pretty similar really underneath because what they're both trying to do is get right. They want to be found right. They want to be considered right. They want to be, in that sense, righteous. They're trying to accrue credits, but actually what they're storing up, Paul says, it's not diamonds, it's coal. You see this still in, in, in our day. You think it's about somebody who's very religious today and can kind of signal their religiosity to try and make themselves look right, all the religious stuff they're doing to try and look right, appear right, be right. And then think about the Oscars last Sunday, where Lady Gaga and Leonardo DiCaprio and all the other virtue signaling, all the causes they're trying to espouse. It's about, we're right, we're right, we're right. It's exactly the same. The very religious person and the Hollywood A-lister all trying to demonstrate how right they are. It's always been how it's been. And Paul calls doing things this way, living according to the flesh. And uh, this, this term, the flesh, appears often in the New Testament, and it has a range of meanings. And here in this passage, there's some, some nuance in the meaning. When Paul talks about the flesh here, he's talking about the mutilators, who are both wanting to literally cut the flesh because they want people to be circumcised before they can become Christians. And he's also talking about those who put confidence in the flesh. That's confidence in what we humanly can do and achieve. And these people are, are saying... You need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to stack these things up in the credit column of life in order to be right. If you do them, then you'll be right. And Paul's saying, no, no, you can't make yourself right. This is the whole point. This is the problem. If you want to be happy in God, it's not something that you can do yourself. It's not something you can earn and achieve and be born into. And he illustrates this with his own story, which is the third point, which it doesn't it doesn't matter how special you are. You're never going to be special enough to be found right. And Paul illustrates this through his own life. Because if anyone was going to get in, if anyone was going to be considered right before God, by natural qualifications it was Paul. And uh, in verses 5 and 6 here, he lists seven different reasons why he could be expected to have confidence in the flesh. That he was a Jew, and the Jews were God's chosen people, God's special people, and Paul himself carried his Jewishness as far as it would go. There was no one more Jewish than Paul. He was born into it, he was raised in it, he was trained in it. He was a Pharisee. He wasn't one of those dodgy Sadducees. He wasn't a wacky Essene. He was a Pharisee. He was the most righteous, straight and sound kind of religious believer there could be. There's no one better qualified. And when this weird group of Christians turned up on the scene, he was front of the queue, throwing stones and persecuting them. Paul was qualified by his birth. He was qualified by his allegiances. He was qualified by his behavior. There was no one more qualified than Paul to stack up the credit side of life and be found right before God. And yet he says it was all rubbish. All the stuff he had stacked in the credit column of life turned out to be loss. It couldn't make him right. He needed something else other than birth and effort to make him right. And it is financial language that Paul is using here. He's talking about credit and he's talking about loss. And he had thought that his birth and his lifestyle and his beliefs were credit in God's bank, all stored up. And now he sees actually they were, it's not credit, it's debt. Actually made things worse. 
Jesus said a very similar thing in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What Jesus is saying is that there is you can spend your life thinking that you're digging up diamonds and stacking them in the credit column when actually all you're doing is digging up moldy turnips which are going to get you nowhere. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't pursue what looks like gain but actually is lost. And what Paul says is, I found that all the stuff I thought was gain was lost compared with gaining Christ. Paul really believed this. And part of the question for us is, well, do we, for those of us who put up, do we share with Paul this kind of belief? Which leads to the fourth point, which is when Paul says that all things, everything was lost. He really does mean everything. Everything is counted as lost. Nothing is excluded. All that stuff which he'd stacked up in the credit column of life, so he thought, actually was lost. It wasn't credit, it was debt. Nothing is excluded. Even the good and the beneficial things are lost when it comes to our standing before God. The money you raise for charity, it's rubbish. The promotion you got at work, it's worthless. How well your kids are doing at school, done. That's what Paul says. It's all rubbish. The word that's translated here as rubbish is a slightly controversial word in terms of how it should be translated. It's probably a slightly stronger term. The old King James Version does translate it as dung. And that is probably a closer estimation. You can think of more contemporary words which would be closer still in our kind of language. It's rubbish. I was walking my dogs on the beach this morning and this time of year they don't empty the dog bins very often. You go and put the dog's mess in the bin. You don't want to linger there. It stinks. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what everything I thought was credit. Actually, no, it's like that stinking pile of dog dung. There's only, only two columns in Paul's spiritual ledger. There's the lost column. Everything's gone in there. It's all gone in there. And there's the gain column, which is Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying here, what he's saying to the Philippians, what he's saying to us is, don't waste your life thinking about the dung. Don't waste your life stacking up rubbish, thinking it's credit. Now that is exceptionally difficult to do. Because those things look like good things. For Paul being born a true Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee. All those things looked good for us. There's so many things in life which look good. And that makes it difficult, and it makes it, what Paul's saying, hugely offensive. It's massively offensive, what he says here. To say all this stuff is rubbish, it's dung, it's worthless, that's massively offensive. Actually, circumcision starts to look a little bit easier as a way in than what Paul says here. Which leads to the fifth point, which is that knowing Jesus beats everything else. Knowing Jesus beats everything else. The thing is that Paul isn't being offensive just for the sake of it. He's not, he's not simply being a shock jock trying to get up our noses. And, and it's not that Paul's saying, don't go give to charity and don't do well at work and 
don't care about how your kids are doing. No, but what he is saying is that none of those things is enough to make you right. And if the real issue for us humans is being right, being found right and proved right, being righteous, being right before God, well, we need to pursue the thing which will make us right and not the things which can't. And knowing Jesus beats all the other things hands down, even the good and the beneficial things. Knowing Jesus is better than being born Jewish. Knowing Jesus is better than being a Pharisee. Knowing Jesus is better than getting a good job. Knowing Jesus is better than your kids doing well at school. Knowing Jesus beats them all. The, um, the series is about joy, and we're giving each, each week, each talk, a, 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 t- a, a title related to joy and what I've called today's talk is Joyful Loss. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the things that he's lost, but which he doesn't weep over, he's joyful about because he's found something which is better. And for Paul to set aside his, his culture and his achievements and his history must have looked like loss. There must have been people who'd known Paul earlier in his life, and saw what he was now doing, he must have thought, what on earth has he done? Why has he given all that up? Think what he was. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This was one of the main men in our culture. Now he's thrown it all away to follow some Messiah figure. What is he doing? But Paul says, Actually, what looks like loss, I've found to be my gain. I've found the treasure. I've found that what I thought was gain was actually just moldy turnips, and now I've found something which really is gold and diamonds, something which is ultimately fully precious. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And do you see the kind of the personal tenderness and effect there for Paul. Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's this deep personal sense that Paul has, that he has connected to Jesus. He's found Jesus to be his Lord. Do we have that sense of personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do we have that sense of Christ's surpassing worth? Paul's claim here is audacious, what sounds like an offensive claim, is that Christ is the one by whom we get right with God, and Christ is the one by whom we get happy. And so for Paul, knowing Jesus Christ meant everything else is worth, everything else is worth giving up. Everything else is worth giving up in order to gain Christ. It means it's worth suffering why is he stuck in that jail? Why is he chained to a Roman soldier? Why, he's, why is he facing trial which, which might lead to his execution? Why is he enduring that suffering? Well, because he's found it's worth it because he's got Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him. Paul wants to know Jesus. And his knowing of Jesus is a complete knowing. It's, it's intellectual, it's his mind, yes, but it's also his experiences, his emotions, his Everything about him is caught up in this knowing of Jesus Christ. And the reason why he's so excited about this and sees everything else as lost is because he knows what he's found is that knowing Jesus is, is for now. That he's achieved, he's, he's gained what he always wanted, which is that sense of being 
completeness, of rightness before God. He's found that, but also he's confident that it's not just for now, but it's forever. And so he says he's, he's looking to attain the resurrection from the dead. He knows that knowing Jesus Christ means resurrection life, and there's nothing else which stacks up like that. Compared with that, everything else is coal and sand and mess and dung and rubbish. Don't settle for turnips when you could have gold, is what Paul is saying. Paul wants to be happy, not just for a few years of his life now, but forever. Paul wants to be found right, not just for now, but forever. And in Christ, he believes that's what he's found. That in Jesus Christ, there's this promise, this hope of resurrection life, that forever, for all time, he can lay hold of it, enjoy it, celebrate it. It's happiness, it's joy, it's fullness for now and forever. Hallelujah. Everything else compared to that. Compared with that, compared with knowing this Jesus, compared with knowing this hope, compared with knowing this life, compared with knowing this resurrection power, it's rubbish. It's dumb. Now, of course, Paul is, is writing. He's writing this letter to a church. He's writing this to a group of people who have experienced what he's experienced and who believe the things that he believes. And that's the case as well for most of us in this room. Most of us in this room have had an encounter with Jesus and we believe that he is the treasure. And we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the reality and the power of that. We believe in eternal joy with God. But we mustn't forget it. We mustn't forget where true joy lies. And the reason why Paul writes the Philippians about this and warns them about this is it's so easy to get suckered so easy to get suckered. I know this myself. It's so easy to get suckered because we can so easily get our eyes off Jesus and all the other stuff. And all the other stuff, which we, which we know is important, but in comparison with knowing Christ is rubbish, we, we, we lose the balance and we start to think, actually, no, this is, we need to get more of that in the credit column of life. And our focus can so easily go on, on those things. It so easily goes on to how we're doing at work or how the kids are doing at school or whatever else it might be. And we start to think, actually, that's the way of salvation. That's where we're going to find our joy. That's where we're going to find our rightness. And what we find again and again is that a couple of years later, we're going to the charity shop. Or a couple of years later, what we've achieved has left us feeling pretty much as we did before. We can get suckered. Our joy can be robbed from us because we forget where our joy is found. And so Paul's appeal to the Philippians, I'm going to keep on telling you this. It's good for you to keep on hearing it. Rejoice in the Lord. And so, Gateway, brothers and sisters, those of us who know and love Jesus, let's, let's not get suckered by all the stuff in life which would say, stack this up and you'll be happy. Now, those things can be good. God blesses us. I thank God for the things he blesses us with, the good stuff of life. The good, I'm grateful for the good things of life I enjoy. I'm so glad that I live here. Isn't it good to live in Paul rather than in Syria? Isn't it good to have food? Isn't it good when the sun shines? Isn't it good when the tulips come out? Isn't it good? There's so much which is good. Isn't it good to have family life? Isn't it good to have friends? But compared to knowing Christ, Christ is in the credit column. So let's not get suckered. Let's, let's not lose sight of that. I mean, next two weeks when we come and we're giving again, Let's not lose sight of who we're giving to and what we're giving for. So easy for us to put our money in the credit column of life. That's my security. That's my salvation. That will be my joy. No, we come and we sacrifice it to Jesus. 
knowing that he actually is the one who supplies for us. He's the one who provides to us for us. He's our joy. He's our hope. Of course, there was a time when neither Paul nor the Philippians did know this or believe it. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a persecutor of the church. There was a time when he hated Jesus. And then the day came when Jesus encountered him and by Christ's mercy and grace, Paul came to see how precious Jesus was and to love him and know him and believe him. And there was a day when Paul, this transformed man, rocked up in Philippi and started to speak about Jesus. And people responded and came to faith in him and believed in him and found him and knew him and loved him. And it might be that for some in this room, this is your day. It might be that up to this point, you haven't known Jesus. That you've been doing what everybody does, stacking up the credit side of life, whatever you can. And it might be that today is the day where by God's grace and mercy, Jesus comes to you and you see actually what is most precious, what is most valuable, what can bring you into real rightness and full joy now and forever. This might be your day where you respond to Jesus and put your trust in him and rise above the circumstances of life and experience the benefits of the gospel. I pray that for some it might. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done for us. I thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us just scrabbling along in our own strength. Thank you that actually now I can say about myself and I can say about my brothers and sisters here that we're not just turnip diggers, however that might be defined in our culture and context, but no, we've now been raised to a place of dignity that we, never mind who I'm descended from, humanly speaking, I'm declared now to be a child of the king. Wow. I'm declared to be adopted by God chosen by him in relationship with him part of his family lord thank you for that thank you that those of us who put our confidence in you jesus can lay claim to that that we have this inheritance and our destiny is to be with you forever and reign with christ over all things well thank you for what you raise us up to i pray that we would find our joy in you jesus i pray that we wouldn't get suckered i pray that we wouldn't find our joy being robbed from us I pray that we wouldn't try and put our confidence by building up credit in other things, but we'd come to you and know you and the power of your resurrection. And Lord, I do pray for those here this morning who are not yet in that place, that by your grace and your mercy, just as you came to Paul, just as you came to the Philippians, just as you've come to me, Jesus, you might make yourself known today to those who don't know you and bring them into this relationship of knowing, of love, of, of joy and confidence and security. I pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.